We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Salah. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it's God who executes just judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. That's Psalm 75, which along with Psalm 76 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, March the 19th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I do want to make one quick comment about the the psalm and, and all the psalms that seems to celebrate judgment against those who have uh, come against the nation of Israel, or individuals even. And and this that's this, that one of the things that's absolutely forbidden to the Jews at the time of the drowning of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea is as a celebration over their defeat because people died. And so it's forbidden to celebrate those deaths. They have to be mourned, even if they had persecuted God's people. And it's an important thing for us to remember when we read those Psalms of Judgment, we should never read it with a vindictive thought that says that we are somehow avenged by that. It's only he who has been sinned against. It's the reason that David says, against you, you only I have sinned, when it's clear that he also sinned against Uriah the Hittite in multiple ways. And so I just want you to understand the way that that Judaism understands those kinds of psalms and understands what it looks like and how we should react to judgment against other human beings, and it's not with uh, victorious delight, it's actually sorrow that they failed to repent and had to come under judgment. And so it's instructive about how Christians should think about the ultimate judgment as well. It should break our hearts that people don't believe and don't therefore receive salvation. So that's just a quick little heads up on that. So in First lesson today is going to be Jeremiah 5, uh, verses 20 to 31, and then the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 1 to 13, and in the letter, Paul's letter to the Roman church, um, chapter 3, verses 19 to 31. <clears throat> so in the, um, in the Jeremiah passage, God's declaring his judgment against the people, and he's declaring his case for judgment against the people at the same time. Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they will not pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. It's, what he's saying is, is that... that we are created in the same way that the sea, the sand on the sea, all that stuff is created. And certainly we know if, if you live in the southern uh, United States, and particularly if you lived in a coastal area in the southern United States, but even, even anywhere on the east seaboard, really, um, that certainly the waves can overwhelm the, the sand on the sea, the seashore, uh, for a season of time. But, but then it retreats to its appointed boundaries. 
um, climate change notwithstanding. So then we get this this statement here that, that all creation obeys the boundaries and the limits that are set for it, except for one part of creation, and that's human beings. And it's because we were given free will at the beginning, and so n- now our argument as Christians is, is that our wills are bound, and they're bound by sin. So we can no longer choose the good and the right of our own free will in every occasion. Um, we can choose it when it benefits us but we don't choose it always when it doesn't benefit us. And so what he's saying is, is that, that I can get everything else in creation to do exactly as it's intended, except humanity, those that were created in my image. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away and your sins have kept good from you. In other words, what he's saying is, is that, that they've turned away, and this whole thing about seasons and harvest and all that, any kind of agricultural imagery like that, is pointing us particularly in the direction of Baal and Asherah because they're fertility gods and goddesses. And so they've gone in that direction. They've, they've said, okay, so it's these other gods who control the fertility of the land. In spite of the fact God gave them the land and promised that it would be fruitful if they obeyed him. And so one of the things that I think we can lose sight of in the church nowadays is we can become so uh, happy with the imminence of God, his, his present reality in our lives and in our midst when we're gathered for worship through the power of the Holy Spirit. We, through that imminence, that's the theological term for it, we can lose sense of the transcendence of God, and we can lose sight of the fact that he is sovereign over all things, and we can lose sight of his judgment. And so we, what we then lose sight of is that fear of the Lord that's important always in our lives. We should never, we never outgrow the fear of the Lord. We don't fear judgment anymore because of the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross, and that's a finished work in the lives of those who believe. But we need to constantly keep in mind that tension between the imminence and the transcendence of God to, to remind ourselves that he is the God of all creation. He is the one who judges all things in the end, and it's him who must be pleased with what we do. And so we can lose sight of the fact that we walk humbly before our God, and we can lose sight of the fear of the Lord. He says, for wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they've become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. And he's saying, you know, hey, they look good because they're prosperous, but but their prosperity is a trap to them, and they use it as a trap for my people. If anything has happened in the last two years during this pandemic, and that is that the rich have gotten richer in this whole thing, you've got guys like Bezos and Gates and all these people who have gotten really, really wealthy, and now the world is at some level beholden to them, and we're taking uh, health advice now from from Bill Gates. And then we've got all these other people, you know, with Mark Zuckerberg and all of them, who, who are involved in all this stuff, and it's become a trap and a snare to us, I believe. A lot of the social media has become a trap and a snare to us, and while it's enriched all these people, and they become then the idols of most of the public. It says they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They're judged not with justice, the cause of the fatherless, to make it prosper. And they don't defend the rights of the needy. I, for a time, I worked for Jeff Bezos. I worked for Amazon. And I can remember after the whole George Floyd thing, they, they put out a memo to the, everybody in the entire company that says on this particular day, we want everybody to cancel all their meetings. 
uh, and reflect on this? Well, I, I responded, <laughs> and I responded back to, to him, actually, and said, well, here's the problem. You're doing that for all your executives, but the women that I work with in customer service whose, whose lives are most apt to be affected by anything like what happened to George Floyd are the women who work with me. The single moms making not minimum wage, but better than a minimum wage. But but those single moms are far greater at risk. And you didn't give them three hours off. You gave highly paid people three hours off. But you just told the whole company this. And why would you do that? Because it shows you don't actually care about those most at risk and those who are poor and needy. And, and it's just the way it is. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall not, I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets Paul prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? And so it's a time of great prosperity in the land. Everything looks good. And so the prophets continue to prophesy good for them as well. And now comes Jeremiah. There's a discordant note into this thing saying, no, judgment is about to happen in Israel. It doesn't look like it. You don't see it because you're appreciating and enjoying the prosperity. You failed to consider the Lord in any of this. In the gospel passage today, uh, we've got another feast coming up. It's the Feast of Booths uh, that celebrates the time in the wilderness. And when uh, Jews build booths all, all over the world, Jews will build booths. And there's lots and lots of restrictions for what those booths need to look like and what they can have in them and what they can't have in them. But, it, but it's a celebration of that time in the wilderness when it was just them and God. And he provided for them everything that they needed on a daily basis. And so when Jesus says, you know, ask for your daily bread, give us today our daily bread, that's what he's referring to is the manna in the wilderness and the provision of God. And we're intended to live at that level, right? Day-to-day dependence and reliance upon him. No matter what we have, we should be living in our hearts at that same place. So after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And the Jews there doesn't refer to the, the mass of people. It refers to the leaders of the Jews who were most threatened by Jesus. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was in hand, so his brothers, his literal brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you're doing. For no one does in, works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So if you're going to claim to be the Messiah and you're going to claim to be this person, then you need to go to Jerusalem for the feast. You need to go down there so that people can see this. If you want to be a big deal, then go down there and, and act like a big deal. And they had to know the problem of going there. So, And then we're told by John, for not even his brothers believed in him. So there's a sarcasm and a cynicism in what they're saying to him here. They don't mean it in the way that it sounds like they mean it. But then Jesus answers them in the same way that he answered Mary at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In other words, that you're not here to accomplish anything particular in life, I am. <laughs> and the time for me to take the stage and to do those things hasn't come yet. We're still in the preparation phase for the glorification. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil, which is exactly the same thing Jeremiah was saying. Is, is that you know, and, and it didn't go well for Jeremiah. It didn't go well for any of the prophets particularly because they prophesied against the current tide. They said things look good, but they're not. God says, no, judgment's about to come. It doesn't look that way, and you won't believe it when it comes. You'll believe it's something else, but it's coming your way. 
He says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come, which is exactly what he told Mary when she first told him that they were out of wine. And saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. In other words, didn't make a big splash like is going to happen later when he goes up to Passover um, for the last time. And so he's sort of uh, slipping into Jerusalem. And you can do that if you're going late. If you're going on at the time that everybody else goes, then you're joining a pilgrim band as you move in the direction of Jerusalem. And so Jesus goes up later, and it's private in the sense that, that everybody else was already there. And so he kind of slips into town is the way to read that. But at, um, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? They expected him to be there and do things like he had done at previous festivals. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him, because if they did, then they would overhear it, and they would come and say, where is he, and what do you know? It, it was, there was a division among the people about whether Jesus was even a good man or not. They believed, some believed that he was leading the people astray, and astray after what and for what purpose? Was he, was he aggrand, self-aggrandizing and bringing them to himself? Is that their charge? And, and you could see why somebody would think that. Even Gamaliel in the book of Acts says the same thing. You know, we've seen other kind of movements like this come and go, and, and mostly go. <laughs> so let's just leave this one alone, see if it's from God or not. And, and that's exactly the way people are looking at it here is, is that Jesus is another one of these false claimants to being Messiah. And so they're, they're uncertain at that time what's going on. Paul, Paul's continuing his argument here that, that everyone stands condemned under the law, whether they have the law or don't have the law, um, that, that we need a Savior, that we need some way of getting out from this because of sin, then, then all of us need somebody to save us from that. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, in other words, I can keep all these aspects of the law, but I'm not going to keep them all. I'm going to fail somewhere along the way, and that failure is called sin. Anytime where I fail to live up to the dictates of the law is called sin. And so that's what Paul says. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So through the law comes some knowledge of righteousness, and if I do these things, I'll be counted righteous. But, but I also recognize that I don't do all those things. And so because I don't do all those things, because I fail at any level, then, then I understand that I have sin in my life and that sin has to be dealt with. And that's the point of the law, Paul says. We wanted to know the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we knew that on an experiential level. But there's a lot more that we need to know, and that's what the commandments are. They tell us, the law tells us, what good and evil actually are. And so we know it in those things. And then how do we apply it becomes the second part of that. Do we refrain from evil and do we do good? And, and we have to say, any honest person would have to say, I don't always. And so the, it's interesting that Paul says the law, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Because what Jesus says is, is that he will give the Holy Spirit, he'll give the paraclete, the helper. And the, the first work, he says, of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world, not just Jews, but convict the world of sin. 
and righteousness and judgment, of the reality of all three of those things, that there is something called sin, and then there's something called righteousness, which is the opposite of sin, and then there's judgment on everything that's not righteous, which is every single one of us. And so that reality should cause us to have that same attitude that Jeremiah talks about towards sin and towards then God, who is righteous. We should have fear of God in the recognition that he has the right to judge. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He said that Jesus is not separate from the law and the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He said that's real righteousness, is believing in the righteousness of Christ and his free sacrifice of himself on our behalf. That, Paul says, is the righteousness of God. It's faith in Jesus Christ. So righteousness, people in right relationship to God, are those who believe in Jesus Christ. That's our work of righteousness. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jew or Gentile, and are justified by his grace as a gift not through works of the law, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So God put Jesus forward as the propitiation for sin, the sacrifice for all time. The one that propitiates sin is the one that covers that sin. And so Jesus' blood covers permanently sin. If the blood of bulls and goats is thrown on the Ark of the Covenant to seal up the judgments of God against sin once a year, then what Paul's argument is is that Jesus did it permanently. It's a one-time offering, and it's good forever for those who believe. If you don't believe in him, then it's not efficacious. It is not sealing judgment against you if you don't believe in Jesus. He says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so what, what you can get the idea of is, is that God doesn't care that much about sin because, well, he lets it go, right? I mean, there's forbearance. He puts up with it. He deals with it for a long period of time. He did with the sin of the Canaanites and the Amorites when they had not yet filled the land. So his people had to wait 400 years in order to come and possess the land. And, and Jesus, for, he forbore with the Jews for a long period of time until he sends the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, to tell them judgment's coming. And then so Jesus comes, and he is the propitiation for that, but he's the proof of God's righteousness that he does actually care about sin and that there's judgment on sin, and the proof of that is the death of his son on the cross. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We can believe in justice— because of the cross. We can believe that God is a God of justice, that sin matters, that justice matters to him because of the cross. Because that's where his wrath is poured out for those who believe. It's poured out on his son. He said, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? He says, by a law of works? No, by a law of faith. We can't boast at all because the work was done by Jesus. All I did was believe. And even that, Paul says before, and then plenty of other times, is a gift. 
that graciousness is itself a gift to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because because of indwelling sin, I couldn't possibly choose to believe in Jesus unless he gave me his Holy Spirit, by which I believe. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You can do works. You're created to do good works. But those are not anything to do with justification. It's part of our sanctification process is to walk out our faith and walk out our salvation in fear and trembling. That's sanctification. And, and that's, those are the good works that were prepared for us beforehand to walk in. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, going back to the central tenet of Judaism, which is Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord your God is one. So oh, there's only one God, and the same God justifies all. But all have to be justified then the same way. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And so the law of sin and death is upheld through faith in Christ because we say that that law still exists and it still applies to those who are not in Christ Jesus. And what's our reaction to that? Well, our reaction should be first thanksgiving that we have been counted in that number. And then the second thing it should be is brokenness over those who do not know him. And then it should issue forth in love in the proclamation of Christ. And that's the way the Christian life is intended to be lived from beginning to end.